Welcome to the You Are Not Broken podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kelly Casperson, a board-certified urologist, thought leader, and conversation starter on midlife living, hormones, and sexuality. Enjoy the show. All right, everybody. Welcome, welcome. I'm Dr. Kelly Casperson. If you didn't know that, I am recording this podcast in Santa Barbara, California. My podcasts come out on Sundays, and this is Sunday, so we are right on time or horrifically late <laughs> either one i've had a, a whirlwind trip so i live in washington state i'm down in california for five days because i spent three nights in long beach california attending the 2024 international society for the study of women's sexual health conference which is exceptional and that's what i'm going to be talking about today and now i'm up in santa barbara because i am doing two nights here um, working on my public speaking because we've got some big plans. So welcome. I had this is an amazing hotel, and uh, there's no coffee in the rooms, so I had to go downstairs. I'm like, can I go downstairs barefoot? Is that allowed? Um, so doing this live on Instagram, we'll see if there's any fun questions that come in, and uh, I'm just basically going to be. I took notes. Like, I'm thinking of you all while I'm at these conferences because I'm thinking, like, what's amazing to me? What's interesting to me? How does this translate to you? What am I want to write down? So, like, I'm old school pen and paper at these conferences to bring to you the knowledge. Um, quick plug that I didn't even do a podcast on is right before this conference was the Harvard Testosterone Education course, which is in Florida. Um, run by Dr. Abe Morgenthaler and Mo Kira and Dr. Rachel Rubin. And that was also amazing for any providers or practitioners who are interested in both testosterone, also women's hormones, and women uh, and men, all, pe all people. There's a, two transgender lectures this year too, which is incredible. Like literally all genders, all hormones, all sexual function. It is a wet dream of a conference. I've gone remote two years in a row now um, because even though I'm an expert, I want to keep learning about it. So you can do it remote or they have it in Florida every year. So God bless Rachel Rubin for being down in Florida teaching that and then being in Long Beach the week after to, um, she is the education chair so of Ishwish. So big deal and full respect for her being away from her family that long. So the 2024 Ishwish, um, for people who don't know what Ishwish is, it was started about 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago now, um, by Dr. Erwin Goldstein and his colleagues. He said there were six people in the room <laughs> when they started this um, and have really made it a international society. There was over, five, there was like 500 or 600 people there the most amount of research abstracts ever um, submitted this year. It is a legit conference. The, I first went uh, at the beginning of my evolution into realizing I didn't know anything about female sexual function. So I first went uh, to their fall course pre-pandemic and was in the coffee line. The coffee is a strong theme in my life. Um, in the coffee line, you know, the 10 a.m. coffee line at conferences, across from Dr. Ashley Fuller, who's an amazing gynecologist who is opening up her private um, hormone menopause clinic in Seattle. 
come June. So Ashley Fuller, she's amazing. If you're nearby, go get your hormones helped (laughs) by Dr. Ashley Fuller. So anyways, drinking coffee across from her. She's a gynecologist trained at one of the top gynecology residencies in the country. I went to medical school with her. I did my general surgery third year medical school rotation with her. So we're very uh, trauma bonded, basically. Pun and no pun intended. So she had these very cute pink danskos in medical school, my friends. So she was across from the coffee line and I'm like, what are you doing here? At the time thinking all the gynecologists knew all the things about female sexual health. And um, she's like, I didn't learn this. So shout out to all the gynecologists. Shout out to all the people everywhere, whether you are a lawyer or an accountant or a bricklayer or a landscape architect, shout out to all the people who love lifelong learning, who love saying, you know what, maybe everything I learned in college and grad school and in my training program isn't all there is to learn. And to go back to uh, Dr. Fuller and me in medical school, I actually told her this this weekend as this memory we had this chief resident i don't remember his name shout out to him since i don't remember his name i can tell you he was like a dick (laughs) but uh i remember him being a dick and then i also remember like looking i was going up the stairs i had turned around i was looking down at him this is like in the hospital i was a third year medical student and i don't know how we were talking about this but he said there is nobody more in charge of your learning than you. Nobody, basically the theory, nobody cares more than you care or should care about your education. And it like was one of those lightning strike moments in my brain where I was like, boom. Like, cause you go through this education system of like your teachers know, the older doctors know, like your parents know, like all these people know what you're supposed to be doing and you're looking to them for guidance. And uh, it was the first time where it's like, no, 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 this, your education is your job. And that applies to everybody, everybody, whether you went through a formal training with continued education or not. I mean, I do continued education for urology, all, all physicians do to remain board certified. And uh, there's, stuff on there that like you don't rely on you can't rely on that for keeping you up to date of of what you know um so point being conferences are important lifelong learning is important even if you're not doing some formal thing like this like what we learned about sex and hormones growing up is not all there is to it like and i think and if i make the grand assumption most of us are just operating as if that knowledge that we learned is all there is to it. And I think that's why we are suffering as much as we're suffering. Yeah, some people on Instagram said, I feel this, love learning, and I'm constantly diving into different topics of interest. Yes. All the people on the podcast, if you're not on Instagram, I'm not going to make you do it. But like, I just hit 90,000 on there. So it's a BFD. And now I'm taking off my sweater because <laughs> I'm hot because I'm drinking coffee. And you can look at my arms. So quick arm flex. Look at this. Quick plug for muscles, people. This takes uh, takes forever. Somebody said, get in the driver's seat and educate yourself. Yeah. All right. So conferences, very important. Um, Dr. Uh, 
Dr. Erwin Goldstein started this with his wife, Sue Goldstein, who is a ASEC certified sex educator. She is amazing and uh, still having trouble finding the right provider for testosterone help. Honey, I'm here. Big things are happening. Let me tell you, testosterone for women, literally my mission. Um, So Sue Goldstein started out the presidential talk because she has been the Ishwish president for the last two years. Shout out to Sue Goldstein. Go back, go back, what are you going to do? You're going to go back like three months on the podcast-ish and you're going to listen to my conversation with Sue Goldstein because it's amazing. Um, See also Dr. Erwin Goldstein, who I think is the week after on my podcast. And he said today he'd come, see today, this today this week the conference thing that he will come back on uh, and because we have more to talk about so she said I wrote this down hearts are as important as our heads or we have nothing and this is an incredible reminder in our broken healthcare system that people have hearts and heads and to listen to people to give people which is incredibly hard to do in a 15 minute doctor appointment right but remembering we're more than our pelvises we're more than our medical conditions we are more than the diagnosis our doctor gave us we're more than the education that we got when we were 18 right so shout out to sue goldstein for the opening statement of ishwish hearts are as important as our heads or we have nothing absolutely love it so the other thing people are talking about is um, sexuality being a human right and I think about that, you know, in two ways. Number one, uh, from a, a legal law standpoint of like protecting, protecting that right. But I also think about it as just bringing an awareness to we have bodies that are sexual bodies. Plants, plants have bodies. Do plants have bodies? Plants have plants that are sexual beings, right? Animals are sexual beings. It's literally part of being in the exist. Unless you're a rock because rocks don't perpetuate their species. Um, literally part of the earth experience is evolution, reproduction, creation of new life. And really how our culture has like taken that and put it in a dark co- corner. And I think there's something so profoundly beautiful to saying our sexuality is and appreciating that is part of appreciating the earthiness of all of us this which is kind of cool or very weird um okay so sexuality being a human right louder for the people in the back of the room that's i gotta i don't do enough live instagram podcasts do i um it's wicked fun for me and also makes me very warm drinking coffee and yelling um okay so they talked about the mission of ishwish is um, sexuality for all and education and really at the beginning of the conference coming back to that mission so that people um, can stay motivated and always be reminded of, of why we're all here. So another, so the first talk this is what you're going to get an unedited podcast today because I ain't got time. So I'm going through the program at a glance because I want to make sure we don't miss anything. 
So we talked, uh, they had great lectures about um, women, ADHD, and sexuality. I was actually texting uh, my friend about this who has uh, very interested in ADHD is like the role of ADHD and your sexuality. And there is some research on this, not all, um, not tons, but certainly all. I'm like literally listening to this ADHD lecture and texting my brother at the same time. And I'm like, do I have ADHD? Do I need to look into this? Like, not that I, not that I haven't thought about this before, but but either I'm very um, easily suggested to, or I'm like, uh, it's quite possible the reason that you do five things at a time and you're kind of successful at it is maybe there's an underlying ADHD diagnosis. My brother actually has, I don't think he'd mind me saying this, kind of um, significant, profound ADHD and um, there's a genetic component. So there's that. Late diagnosed ADHD, yeah. The, I mean, the other very interesting thing about ADHD is it's, um, you know, a lot of people will say late diagnosis ADHD or midlife diagnosis ADHD. And I really think a lot of perimenopausal symptoms, that's the question. That's why we need more research, right? Is it like, is declining hormones bringing out more of the ADHD because you have more anxiety, uh, you know, maybe more more symptoms in your body? So is lowering hormones bringing out more ADHD? Or are we misdiagnosing? Are we calling it ADHD because we're actually more comfortable with that diagnosis than we're comfortable with the perimenopause diagnosis, right? I have a lot of questions about midlife and ADHD. I promise you people are actually looking into this. I need to have somebody on my podcast about um, perimenopause, menopause, and ADHD. So yeah, somebody just said, um, I just had mine increase. Somebody else said diagnosed with ADHD at 42. Yeah, and then my my opinion not being a researcher on this is we definitely can't forget the importance of hormones in midlife and not just call it one thing and forget about the profound changes that are happening in our bodies hormone-wise um, at the exact same time and kind of and we need to remember that, right? Cuz a lot of women will say my anxiety, my ADHD, my hyperactivity, my sleep got better once I got the hormones figured out. Um, so shout out to Ishwish for talking about um, ADHD. Uh, then the next talk was supporting sexual well-being in people with developmental disabilities. Um, Rebecca Cam's PhD, psychotherapist, gave a lecture about that. Um, very helpful. Again, not a lot of don't have tons of research, but one thing that is overwhelming, one thing that was significant to me about the talk with people with developmental disabilities and sexuality is like um, the, how we ignore, first of all, we ignore sexuality in most people, at least women, but really ignoring being sexual beings in people with uh, developmental disabilities or a diagnosis, they actually get way less sex education, therefore more vulnerable to people wanting to use them, manipulate them, and put them in um, situations where they're not safe. Somebody just said, my doc said I'm too young for menopause and too old for ADHD. Oh my effing lord. Somebody else, I love you guys. Somebody else said, sounds like you need a new doctor. Thank you for, thank you for saying that. Um, 
So the statistic was 40 to 60% of people with autism leave high school with no sexual education. And 60% of teachers, this is a study that they present, 60% of teachers think that these students could benefit from sex education. So the majority of people think they need help. The, uh, The majority of people aren't getting help. And again, we can't ignore humans as being sexual beings. And if we do ignore them, there are consequences. It's not like, oh, well, they're just never going to need this. They can be put in places of vulnerability and abuse. And on the flip side, they deserve to understand that their body can experience pleasure in whatever form that can be and how that they can, um, they can approach that safely. Um, the other statistic which was really shocking to me about that talk was one in three females with a disability do not have a usual healthcare provider. What I mean by usual is like somebody who knows you, right? I know you, I've taken care of you, I see you. Certainly with our fractured healthcare system, providers leaving all the time, much more employed situation, so jobs aren't as secure as they used to be. Um, We get a lot of our care with urgent care, especially if we're decently healthy people, right? We don't go in and build that relationship. And certainly with something as intimate as sexual health, that relationship really does matter. So Amy Gravino, uh, look her up. She's at Rutgers. She gave an amazing lecture on sexuality and the spectrum. Um, Her herself sharing her experience of her story and how she now researches this. Really an advocate for autism, sexuality, educating. Um, So highly recommend checking her out basically the the her question was how can we help autistic people date and learn about sex so she developed a curriculum uh talking about consent talking about sensory issues talking about expectations uh teaching people that porn is not sex sex is not porn um there are some resources for the autism community if you want to look this this up is um, other training is Elevatus training, E-L-E-V-A-T-U-S training, Hearts Curricula, um, and Sex Ed for Self-Advocates, which talks about hygiene, um, talks about lots of important things. There's actually dating sites for the autism community. One's called Hickey, H-I-K-I. One's called Autism Date. One's called Unipi, U-N-E-E-P-I. And one's called Aspie Singles. So if anybody who needs those resources, um, really in helping educate people and specifically addressing concerns that might be more relevant to them than not. So I love love that that was a talk. Um, Then I went to uh, a lecture called Polysexuality and its influence on sexual health care. The speaker was amazing, sex therapist. And let's see if I can find her name real quick. Let me look. Oh, it's not in the paper one. I don't have it up right now. So basically helping us with the word salad of all the words that everybody uses. Androsexual, that was a new one for me. That is a person who has sex with men. So that's a cool new word. (laughs) Kelly currently reframing, uh, not wanting to make jokes about herself. So, and uh, lots of, uh, oh, autosexual somebody who's turned on by themselves 
So lots of new words for us and lots of words overlap. And the takeaway I got for this, which I think, like what's the takeaway I want to share with you all, is definitions mean different things to different people. If you don't know, ask them what it means to you or ask them what it means to that person. Um, One example is the word queer and kind of how the definition of that word has been changing or has changed. And if you don't know what it means, we all just kind of make assumptions of what we think these words mean, is asking the person like, explain to me what that word, I want to understand more. Do it in a non-confrontational way. (laughs) But like, I want to learn more. What does that word, you know, mean to you so I can understand better? So it doesn't, it's not so much the label as what the label means. And it's not so much like, do you fit into a label or not, is how you identify. So that was a wonderful, those were wonderful takeaways to me. Um, also, you know, there's so many different like categories, and leave it up to this, the scientists and the researchers to like make categories, right? And humans want that. We want certainty. We want black and white. We want absolutes, right? And so we really want to put people into categories, but People are people with hearts and heads, and they don't always fit into categories. Um, and see the person, see the person more than you see the label. Also, they're you know breaking down things into categories of what type of attraction do you have? Do you have a friendship attraction to somebody, a romantic attraction to somebody, a sexual attraction to somebody? And understanding a sexual attraction to somebody can be different than a romantic attraction to somebody, which was like, something we don't always suss out. I just thought that was very thought-provoking. Oh, the other one is aesthetic attraction to somebody. You just like the way they look, but you don't really want to get involved (laughs) either like romantically or sexually or anything. You're just like, I have an aesthetic attraction to you, which sounds like an amazing compliment. It's like, I don't want to actually do anything with you. I just like looking at this. So that's pretty fun. we're talking about the role of um, monogamy and polygamy and how their statistic was most of the world is polygamous really a western construct of monogamy like I would just I just want like a freaking day-long course on like the I just want to understand the history and the role of Europe and the role of religion and the role of land land uh, inheritance laws and gender bias like I just want who's the freaking expert on that because I want to know um so they're they're talking about the difference between classical monogamy and serial monogamy and they say most of us are serial monogamous they say what classical monogamy is I think there's like a bird that's classical monogamous but so you're a virgin then you get married you just have intimacy with that person and then that person if that person were to die then you never again have sex again that's the definition of classical monogamy and they said we argue that most of us are serial monogamous so we have individual relationships there might be a marriage somewhere in there and then if somebody dies or moves on then there's somebody else that's a serial monogamist um and they're talking about the role of social change and the social changes of the last 80 years in changing our view of monogamy. Um, birth control, the sexual revolution, less religion adherence, we're living longer. 
100 I love this data. 100 years ago, marriage lasted on average 25 years. Somebody died. Going back to my whole theory of like why hormones are important in menopause, we are living more and longer than we ever have without hormones, so there can be consequences. Um, and kind of that proof of like, we have like 50 year marriages now. I have patients who've been married for 60 years, right? The average length of marriage, not because of divorce, but because of lifespan and health, 100 years ago was 25 years. And I had seen somewhere else that the, an average marriage was seven years because of the rate of like death in childhood, sorry, childbirth. Um, so something to think about. Um, oh, new forms of communication, going back to the list of how our changes in society have impacted monogamy. New forms of communication, like literally your dating pool was like your county, even in this what, 70s, maybe 80s? right? I can literally go on and find somebody in France right now. <laughs> like, it is insane how available people around the world are to us now in exposing us to so many different opportunities. Your dating pool is larger. Um, and more, more and more people aren't strict, strictly monogamous and aren't strictly heterosexual. They're talking about the rise of like, um, I was married to a man, my husband passed away, now I'm in a relationship with a woman. And like how, how these things can change as we live longer and we're exposed to more different people. So very thought provoking, very cool talk. I need to have her on my podcast, hold on. Uh, Anna, I'm blanking. Anna, God bless you for giving that talk. Totally blanking on your name right now. All right, so going on to more statistics, 21% of Gen Z identifies as LGBTQ. Uh, of boomers, they said, I think it was like two or 3%. So the profound changes in um, how, who we're saying we're attracted to, what kind of people we wanna be in relationships with, how we feel we identify on a gender spectrum. So 21% of Gen Z. On Match.com in 2024, one third of USA singles, so again, this is USA singles who are on Match.com, uh, so people on dating sites, say they have a consensual non-monogamous relationship and the data that attraction does shift over time. And, um, and kind of normalizing that. As far as health-related outcomes and polysexuality, um, you're just talking about how unsupported people are. There is an increased, race, uh, increased rate of suicide in people who identify as polysexual. Uh, they talked about something called bi-invisibility, um, feeling like they don't exist, um, and really dismissing people who say that they're bisexual. And just, again, the overwhelming, like, we hate not being able to put people in boxes. We want to we wanna be like, that's where you were. If you say you're going to change, now we don't accept you. Um, and, and saying how um, labels are really tough, but at the same time, people hate uncertainty. There was a, a person who spoke, and um, what I learned from her, is she's a pediatrician who works with sex workers in helping them... Um, access healthcare, stay safe, get tested. And it's like, 
if pediatricians are starting to help, like the, the need's overwhelming and they're not getting treatment in like the traditional, I wouldn't have thought of a pediatrician being somebody, you know, who automatically would be helping support sex workers with their health. But it's like she identified a need and now she says like regular pr primary care will call her and ask like what panels to run and you know how to test because she's really identified herself as an expert. So thank you to her for being at that conference and meeting me. Um, some books if people need or want to read more about this. Uh, Poly Secure by Jessica Fern and Opening Up by Tristan Taromino are two books for people to explore polysexuality more if they want resources. So now we're talking about um, knowledge transference and how do people access accurate medical education. Thank you for everybody for referring them to my Instagram and to my podcast. Of course, that's, this is why I started it. But they um, quoted a statistic that 70% of mental health info on TikTok is inaccurate. I believe it. I, I quit TikTok at the beginning of 2023. Um, I decided to double down on Instagram and the podcast. You can only do so much. But that was part of it is like the, the absolute promotion of complete bullshit um, was something I... Instead of deciding to try to help that, I decided to get off that platform completely. I don't know if I'll go back on. But the point being, there is a lot of inaccurate medical information out there. And especially when done, yeah, somebody on Instagram, I refuse to get on TikTok. Me too. Me too, girl. Totally. Um, the other thing I wanted to do a quick shout out to was the international people that came to Long Beach. Um, we had... Of the people that I know about, and I know there was more, we had a doctor from Russia there, several physicians from Thailand, France. I met a person from Amsterdam. Uh, I met a person from New Zealand. Shout out, you have amazing style. I loved looking at your dress. <laughs> um, that international people came, and I just wanted, I want to thank all the international people that came to our country because sometimes our country is portrayed as a little crazy um, and unsettled and violent and argumentative. Um, our country kind of has some image issues sometimes. Um, and I'm trying, I'm not trying to put our country in a box or give it too many labels, but thank you for coming over. Thank you for coming to my country. Thank you for introducing yourselves thank you for taking this knowledge and by no means does america for any reason have the end-all be-all on how to do this right um, so thank you for coming and sharing and exposing us to the world i've learned so much and i wanted to shout out to all the international people who came to this ishwish conference okay next cool thing um i learned about well i've kind of learned i mean there we're it's not this new, new, new thing, but shockwave therapy. So anybody, anybody who's out there has heard about shockwave therapy for erectile dysfunction. And this is my buyer beware um, advertisement before I go into some cool stuff. There are basically two different types of shockwave machines. One of them is bullshit placebo and one of them is the real deal. And it has to do with the depth of the shockwave and how powerful it is and how it's regulated by the FDA as a class one or class two uh machine or product so a lot of the shockwave for erectile dysfunction is placebo 
Um, these are vulnerable individuals who are desperate, who aren't getting what they want from traditional, med like traditional Western medicine. And so are shelling out cash for this. And um, the placebo arm of any sexual health thing is significant, right? Placebo for sex med is about 30 to 40%. So there's a lot of bullshit shockwave, but there's legitimate shockwave. Apparently people shockwave horses, like in the horse therapy, horse husbandry world, using shockwaves helps them. So it's basically a radial ballistic shockwave, which is a, uh, that, that's with the radial ballistic pressure wave, which is your class one, which is your scam, right? And then the class two devices are the ones that are FDA cleared and they increase blood flow, improve wound healing, um, help with connective tissue and uh, bring in nitric oxide, which is a vasodilator, so brings in more blood flow. So if you're interested in shelling out cash, because insurance does not currently cover shockwave therapy, um, investigate what machine it is. And I would get a couple of opinions on different people in different machines before you spent your money on it to try to get the uh, class two shockwave. So one brand or company that is considered legitimate is called Softwave. Yeah, Shockwave used for tennis elbow. Yeah, they use it in rehab. Um, so basically, it's improving the tissue, getting in more blood flow, um, helping pain. I, I Somebody at the conference said that their TMJ, they Shockwave their jaw for TMJ and it got better. So... Um, there's something to it. They're looking into it for stress incontinence. Um, I'm I'm excited and skeptical at the same time with stress incontinence because I'm old enough to have seen a lot of bullshit come and go in the stress incontinence, and I think women are marketed to again vulnerable population who are desperate. They don't want mesh. So I'm excited and concerned at the same time on on that. I don't jump on the new bandwagon with every everything that's out there. So. I'll need to see more datas before I can recommend anything specifically for stress incontinence, but it is improving blood flow. So for um, pain conditions, tight pelvic floor, there's absolutely a, uh, a theory on getting more blood flow in the muscles so the physical therapist can work, do their work on the muscles better. Somebody just said, um, I want to try that for, or they're doing it for tennis elbow. So... That's cool. Uh, moving on. So I hope you guys are, I'm 35 minutes in and I think I'm literally on day one of the conference right now. <laughs> so hang with me. It's rapid fire. Lots of different topics. Um, 40 million women have genital urinary syndrome and menopause. I need to do a reel on that. That's a wild amount of people. Again, my view, vaginal estrogen should be over the counter. I don't think we're, anybody's talking about doing that in this country but it's over the counter in in several other countries we are working uh, pretty darn hard on getting the black box warning off of vaginal estrogen somebody emailed me today and said we're not going to call it the black box warning anymore because using the word black it's it's perpetuating that black is bad perpetuating that the word black is dangerous and also perpetuating that like what's in the if it's a black box warning that means everything in there is like absolutely bad and we know a, a lot of especially what's in the black box warning um and i just called it the black box warning i need to work on that too but it was like the first time i thought like let's not call it a black box warning let's just call it the fda boxed label 
right? And kind of de uh, take away the power of what that sounds like. Also the stigma that we're perpetuating that something that black is bad. So shout out to the person who emailed me about that because that made me think today and thank you very, very much. So we're not going to call it black box warning anymore, even though I'm going to slip up and do it. We're going to call it the FDA boxed labeling. Doesn't sound. I, I love it. I absolutely love it. Okay. So what uh, Friday morning, we move on to Friday morning. We're, we are now on day two. Oh, one more thought about genital urinary syndrome of menopause is that Rachel Rubin is spearheading a bunch of medical students. Um, it's called the Sexual Medicine Research Team. Smart. SMRT, Sexual Medicine Research Team. If you're a medical student, you want to get involved in sex med research, Google that or email Rachel Rubin's clinic in Maryland. Uh, you can get in. These are This is not just one medical school doing this. It's multiple and they're doing a lot of cool things. They just created a new diagnosis, new label, uh, new new nomenclature. I'm not sure what the actual term is for this. Of when you are breastfeeding, you have a low estrogen state. You have a lot of prolactin to make your milk and you uh, have a low estrogen state and you can get a painful vulva, pain with sex, burning um, of the vulva and vagina. And so now we're not calling that GSM because we used to say, oh, it's GSM, but general urinary syndrome of menopause, but you can get it in perimenopause. You can get it with uh, some birth control. You can get it with breastfeeding. And then they're like, well, why do you have menopause in that name then? Because that's not to stigmatize menopause, but it actually doesn't explain uh, the other people that have this experience, right? So Dr. Rubin and her team presented a abstract called uh, genital urinary syndrome of lactation. Really to normalize that this is what happens with when our hormones change with breastfeeding and to help women who are suffering understand that this is not all in your head. You're not going crazy. This is literally what happens to your vulva when your estrogen goes down. And breastfeeding women can safely take vaginal estrogen products to help relieve the symptoms. Basically skincare for down there. So general urinary syndrome of lactation. Medical students can change the world. I hope that helps. All right. Um, so next one. What is the relationship between immune dysfunction, the vaginal microbiome, and vulvar pain? That was the Friday morning talk. Very fascinating. Very research heavy. Uh, thank God for the... You guys, fun fact about me. Two fun facts about me. Number one, I have no sense of smell. I'm anosmic. Happened in childhood. I have three smell memories. Um, the incense at the Catholic Church, a, my aunt and possibly my mom smoking a cigarette when I was in the back of our, what are those called? You know those long cars that, uh, and remember you didn't have to wear seatbelts? <laughs> we spent a lot of time in the very back of possibly a Toyota uh, unseatbelted, and I have a cigarette memory from that. And I also remember going down the stairs in my aunt's house smelling apple pie. So I have three, three scent memories. So that's a one fun fact about me. The other fun fact about me is I am an MD-PhD dropout, my friends. I started MD-PhD, super nerdy, super smart, uh, and did PhD courses at the same time as my first and second year medical school, which now sounds insane to me. Pre see previous 20 minutes ago where I asked the question of, do I possibly have undiagnosed ADHD? <laughs> you guys may be able to answer that better than me. 
Um, but I hated microscopes. I hate microscopes. I hate writing grants. I hate doing things slowly. So I actually quit or dro dropped out. Uh, station wagon. Thank you. Station wagon. That is the name of the car that I wanted. Yeah, good old days. No seatbelts and secondhand smoke. That's right. Hashtag Gen X. Hashtag kid of the 80s. Um, so dropped out of the PhD. But this, these research um, presentations, number one, remind me why I quit. And then number two, make me incredibly grateful for the people who do find those things fascinating and worth their time. And um, God bless you all for doing that research. I am here. I'm put on this earth to translate the research. I, I wasn't put, although I have lots of research questions, I really want to do some research on looking at consent in marriages and this quasi-consent that a lot of women do where like they have sex for other people. I think that's horrifically under-researched. So shout out to anybody who wants to help me manifest that and is working in a lab to help me figure out that. Um, anyways, let's go, let's go back to the microbiome and the vagina, shall we? Anybody on here an ADHD expert? <laughs> Anybody want to run me, put me through some tests? Can I still drink coffee? That's the most important question. All right. So Friday morning talk. The, the more immune-related disorders that you have, the more likely you have vulvodynia, which is pain in the vulva. Uh, about two to three times the uh, rate of people who don't have other immune disorders. And women with vulvodynia, pain in the vulva, are less healthy in general. Or, is that true? Or, is it just because they see doctors more? So if you're a person who goes to the doctor more, you're going to have more labels and diagnoses than a person that doesn't go to the doctor. Right? It's kind of... <laughs> if coffee is a stimulant, you're probably all set. I'm not, I'm not sure. Am I self-diagnosing? Self I should stop, shouldn't I? All right. So the, the hot, one, one of the hot topics is the role of mast cells and uh, vulvar pain. I'm actually going to have on Dr. Andrew Goldstein uh, in the next couple of months, a uh, vulvar specialist in D.C. and New York, and he's very interested in the role of mast cells, Ehlers-Danlos connective tissue disorders, and vulvar pain. So we're going to try to explain that all to you and make it interesting and help people understand how they're all related. So immune activation impacts vulvodynia. So the research, blah, 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 all the research asking, is it, the, is it, is it an infection that starts the cascade? Or is it, are you more vulnerable to infection because you already have underlying immune issues, right? I want to say strength, like your, your ability to withstand the insult of an infection. Right, so it's, it's kind of a chicken and egg question is what they're trying to answer. And they said the microbiome doesn't affect your vulvar pain or your chance of vulvar pain, but it affects, your microbiome affects your immune function, which then affects the vulvar pain. Therefore, women with more vaginal infections are more likely to get vulvar pain, but it's not actually the infection that directly caused the pain. It's this upregulation, likely via mast cells and inflammation. So more to come. Super interesting in trying to figure this all out. Um, and I love thinking about it.
Okay, moving on. The incidence of adverse childhood events in Volvodynia. A lot of people, and they were saying a lot of people haven't looked at this. So anybody who has heard of ACEs before, um, adverse childhood events, you can Google adverse childhood events or ACEs. There's actually a quiz you can take to see kind of where you st- where you do you stack up in the uh, adults who have experienced adverse childhood events. But the role of that in affecting immune function and chronic pain in the future. We certainly know that adverse childhood effect, uh, events are more correlated with, I believe it's hypertension, diabetes, depression, and anxiety, a lot of adult healthcare uh, issues. And the, uh, then they're asking the, the question, is chronic bowel and bladder pain an autoimmune condition? Very interesting. Um, can you change your microbiome with stress? does stress affect your microbiome, right? And then the role of any supplement in kind of correcting that. We know that one dose of antibiotics can upset your microbiome for, it can take up to six months for your microbiome to normalize or get back to um, how it was after a dose of antibiotics. It's not anything people really talk about. I, I did not make that up. I saw that in a paper. I can't quote it. Um, then they were talking about like, What's the role of like your early vulva, like and you being exposed to diaper creams, um, and all the topical over-the-counter stuff that that are being that's marketed to women for like, and you know how all the experts say the vagina is a self-cleaning oven. All you need down there is water, but like literally you go to any sort of like pharmacy or big box store and they're selling you stuff to put on your vulva. What's the role of that in triggering pain? All right, let's go back. I wrote all this down because I wanted to remind people of this. What's the role of, uh, what's the definition of hypoactive sexual desire disorder, which is kind of, you have to define this in order to research it, in order to get drugs um, approved. Um, Somebody just said to tie it up, ACEs have become more foundational in the work of psychology and medicine. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so the definition of hypoactive sexual desire disorder, present for greater than six months, lack of motivation for sexual activity, reduced responsive desire, and reduced uh, initiation of sex. So it can be both um, responsive and spontaneous desire, which um, is an important distinction. Anybody who's new to me, please go back, learn about the desire types. Um, Very, very important. and, and this uh, decreased responsiveness has to be distressful for you. You can't be like, yeah, I'm not interested in sex and I'm totally happy with my life. Like nobody's going to be like, you must change. It's people who are distressed by it for, for options. Um, and then the quote, which I loved, desire doesn't fall from the sky, right? Like you have to be in a sexual context it can't be because so many you know researchers they're like are you experiencing sexual desire and you're like no i'm filling out an online questionnaire at work (laughs) right like desire doesn't fall from the sky for many people now some young people with raging hormones uh of multiple genders might say that desire is falling from the sky but that is not everybody's normal lived experience especially as we age mature get in long-term relationships x y and z but i loved that quote desire doesn't come from the sky Sexual problems increase with age, but people actually become less distressed about it. Um, and really talking about the role of healthcare providers in addressing people's quality of life, because 
quality of life matters and I will pound this till I die on the hormone issue of like we're not just here to make you live longer we want to help you thrive while you're living what about itchy lady bits and menopause yes god bless that is big they did not have an itchy lady bits and menopause course at this year's ish wish but maybe they should um yeah it can absolutely be hormone mediated itchy dry skin in general everywhere um that's real that's not in your head I'm starting to get itchy in my perimenopause era. era. <laughs> I will report back. Um, okay, so quality of life is important. They did an online survey of pre-menopausal pre women. 40% complained of low desire. 48% expressed an interest in safe medications. Most people don't know that there are medications available. Oh, sorry for the podcast people, but I'm in a tank top on Instagram and somebody just said they liked my arms. So I actually talked to an amazing internal medicine doc. Please pause while I rub my arms. Um, amazing uh, internal medicine doc who is also into lifting. And she's like, most postmenopausal women don't know how to lift weights. And, and I'm like, well, I've been lifting weights for, oh God, before medical school. Um, see also, AKA for a while. And, uh, and I'm like, should I, should I start posting more about that on Instagram and like maybe being like a role model? In my private membership, I, um, we have, well, I call them sweaty selfies. That's kind of like a, a beach body thing, but like an accountability fitness group in the private membership. And I post in that private Facebook group four to five times a week about me having just completed my workout. For me, accountability is everything. I was not working out the way I'm working out now until I really figured out mind work and the role of your limiting beliefs on you showing up for yourself, you showing up. I'm not a morning person. This isn't happening fast enough. It doesn't really matter. Those are all thoughts that we think are facts. Work on your freaking brain to change your body. It's a thing. Um, and then me showing up as accountability for other people. Um, they're going to show up and post their sweaty selfies. So I better show up and post my sweaty selfies. And when I'm traveling like this, I like post a picture of my yoga mat or how many steps I walked, you know, saying like when you travel, I'm not doing my usual plan, but um, it still matters on how I, how I take care of myself. Okay. So squirrel. Um, another premenopausal survey showed an 88% reduced or absence of sexual desire. Um, so just really showing how this is undertreated, this is under-acknowledged, women want safe answers, uh, they're interested in it if there is a medication that could help. Um, I have multiple other podcasts about the medications, so please see those. Um, this is fascinating. Living together was more correlated with low desire than menopause was. Living together with your partner was more correlated with low desire than menopause was. Two important takeaways with that. Number one, menopause is not always associated with low desire. I think it's got more of a reputation for that than is what actually is in, it, it, it true about menopause and desire. And then number two, the profound acknowledgement that a long-term committed relationship is a, a risk factor, that sounds very medical, uh, for low desire and be able to like acknowledge that and to be like there is a, as esther perel says there is a trade-off 
to long-term monogamy. There are many benefits, but if spontaneous sex all the time is what you think you should be having in a long-term relationship, you missed the introduction to long-term relationships. Um, Okay, going back, since we're talking about muscles and personal training real quick, I have had multiple women say that they're on hormones now because of their personal trainer. Because of their personal trainer, because there's something happening in the personal training world where they understand the importance of hormones and muscle and recovery and lean body mass and function that the personal training world is encouraging the women to go to their doctor to get to talk about hormones, which is absolutely cool. Okay. Um, Somebody was talking about new research coming out looking at clitoral ultrasound to evaluate for cardiovascular disease in women. And I love this because we know penile, everybody knows not everybody knows, but most medical people know that uh, erectile dysfunction, issues with your blood flow in the penis, is a harbinger of cardiovascular disease uh, because it's microvessel disease, and like that comes first before the bigger arteries of the heart. And uh, the clitoris, the clitoris is the same. We all have the same body parts, just rearranged differently. And half of us don't pee through our arousal tissue, so. Um, so that's going to be cool. There's a, they were talking about the role of distress or um, stress. They were specifically talking about like life events and stressors, um, trauma, war, the, the economy crashing, COVID, right? There's a lot of research coming out looking at what, what happened to people's sex lives with COVID. Some people's desire goes up as a coping mechanism, not even a coping mechanism, also as like a way to remember or feel like you're alive, that you're existing, that there's still pleasure in life, right? Wonderful, beautiful, and pleasurable. And then the other people say, I have a decreased desire, I'm too stressed to have sex. And then some people say, I have sex to remember my aliveness, to feel connection, to feel love, as a reminder that we're alive and there's still pleasurable things in this world. So super interesting sex is a stress as a stress response yeah absolutely some people have sex to help cope with stress some people don't want to have sex when stressed this is why it's very important to talk to your partner about sex and to really understand how uh, they think about it what it gives to them what it brings to them Uh, then there was an uh, article on, or an article, a, a talk on diabetes and sexual function. A half a billion people with diabetes worldwide. It's correlated with decreased desire, decreased lubricant, inhibited orgasm, increased dryness and distress. The mental burden of having diabetes, somebody stood up and spoke and said, there is a study showing that people with diabetes, uh, I think this was spe- specifically type 1, diabetes where you don't produce insulin they have 120 more decisions a day that they have to make compared to people that don't have to manage that disease Um, profoundly insightful for me to hear that story so thank you for the person who stood up and talked about that Um, and that diabetes affects you in a biopsychosocial arena 
In women with type 1 diabetes, sexual dysfunction was related to depression and the quality of their partner relationship. Female sexual dysfunction in diabetes type 1 was is 38%. Um, in diabetes type 2, 62% had female sexual dysfunction. Uh, it is associated with hypertension. And in diabetes type 2, age, depression, and greater than one diabetes complication. So issues like health uh, issues with the diabetes is associated with female sexual dysfunction. Physical activity protects women with diabetes from sexual dysfunction. And some research in diabetes type 2 showed intensive lifestyle interventions, lifting a lot more weights, um, improved female sexual dysfunction. Sorry, not lifting weights. They lost weight with intensive lifestyle modifications. Um, and they improved their female sexual dysfunction and they remained more likely to remain sexually active. I was talking, I went to a talk on Vioza. No, yeah, Vioza, Festo Linitant, um, which is ba basically we're calling it the Super Bowl hot flash drug because they have had a uh, Super Bowl ad two years in a row. They are heavily marketing this to women. It is quite expensive. We have uh, not many years of research on this. I do need to do an entire podcast on this drug. I am learning. I do not have a black and white, this is clear for everybody, what I think about this drug. I still think that in people who can take estrogen, and the majority of us can take estrogen, even though a large amount of us think we can't, uh, estrogen is best. Estrogen is, talking about natural, right? Estrogen is just replacing the estrogen that your body made. That's the most natural thing you can do to treat symptoms in your body, um, caused by low estrogen. It's like, if your thyroid is low, replacing the thyroid is the most kind of logical, natural thing. If your insulin is low, if your vitamin D is low, these are all hormones, right? Hormones are not inherently bad. Hormones make us who we are. So this drug works specifically in the brain. I think it's being marketed as it's working very specifically at one place in the brain. Nothing works specifically at one place in the brain, my friends. Um, certainly I am very curious, aka concerned, about its role in affecting serotonin and, and um, dopamine, its role in actually lowering testosterone because it has been studied in the PCOS community for lowering testosterone therapeutically, um, or, or the, this class of drug, I should say. And um, my thought of if we're giving this to a postmenopausal woman and like her only remaining hormone is testosterone when we're lowering it maybe that's a little counterproductive um, and the other thing is there's there's three contraindications to um, this drug and it's uh, significant liver disease significant kidney disease and then uh, something called cyp1a2 inhibitors which is a whole host of drugs and they didn't really clarify like how much you can take these or not. And I'm like, well, I don't know what a CYP1A2 inhibitor is. It's very vague, especially to a urologist. So it's going to be vague to everybody else. Um, coffee, my friends. Coffee. Yeah, the other thing is somebody you know just brought up on Instagram, which is true. I hate the way the buzz folks use hormone-free in their marketing as a positive. Absolutely. Actually, the... Uh, talk to one of the reps for this company and in like I'm an Enneagram 8 
I just like to I just like to speak directly to people. So sometimes that comes across as a little abrasive. <laughs> Hashtag personal growth. But I'm like, dude, you can't say a hormone-free alternative. You can't say non-hormonal. And you specifically can't say non-hormonal when we have studies showing it lowers testosterone. Technically, it's not a hormone. But to then say it's non-hormonal when we have studies that show it lowers testosterone? Yes, and coffee. So of course, we're like, um, is it true that you can't drink coffee with this drug? And they're like, more studies need to be done. Please just see that it's contraindicated in CYP1A2 inhibitors. I immediately go on Google and say, coffee is coffee a CYP1A2 inhibitor? The answer is yes. So I think, I, I mean, I would, I, would, I would hate to be the one to break the internet on Vioza. You can't drink coffee with it, but like I easily see some concern. Um, and it might just affect how well the drug works, either by increasing or decreasing its effect, efficacy. But my point is don't be swept up on the bandwagon that a new drug only works in one part of the brain and is the next best thing since sliced bread and is worth 400 freaking dollars a month when you can get estrogen for $25 a month. So in people who can't take estrogen currently, see also the breast cancer community breast cancer survivorship community and people who've had a history of you know blood clots pulmonary embolisms significant cardiac dysfunction there is currently a group of people who aren't going to be allowed to be on hormones but that is a very small group and i hate to be a cynic but it's actually hard for a drug company to want to create a drug for a small group of people see all the small groups of people who need drugs to help them and it's not being done so you know that this drug is being marketed to your average woman and is being helped by the incredible fear of estrogen that um, <coughs> is still out there that we're trying to debunk. So I hope that was a fair analysis of festolinitant, which is the generic of the Super Bowl drug. Um, what else? You guys, are you still with me? This was an amazing conference. I have a lot of thoughts. So great talk on how to do social media. I did a lecture with the amazing Dr. Jill Kraft as um, talking about advocacy and what advocacy looks like and some of the stories that I've been able to share. You know, getting women in Pakistan estrogen, it comes to mind because that just happened. Um, advocacy with uh, being on social media and helping to educate and helping to debunk miseducation. I am here, like my subtitle is, I am here to make people think. I am not here to tell you what to do. I am here to make you think. And if I made you think, I've done my job. In a world where so many people benefit by you not thinking, I am here to do my job. Um, so then we did, uh, there was a lecture on orgasm, which is was very cool. It was the orgasms, orgasm... Sim yeah, special, special interest group breakfast session, management of female orgasmic disorder, a work in progress. Very cool stuff coming out of orgasm. And really like some, some science things we need to like simplify to explain to people. But I think with orgasm, we actually take this like taboo topic and then we're like, 
these are the nerves. These are the neurotransmitters. This is how it inhibits pain. And you actually science the orgasm up to make that topic more approachable to people. To be like, oh, you can talk about this just like you can talk about how your hand works, right? It's fascinating. Um, so very camisaric. Uh, I need to have him on the podcast because he is like the world's expert on orgasm. And he gave the lecture on orgasm, which I love. Very commissaric. He's at Rutgers. Talking about... And this is cool, you guys. This is so cool. They, if you've stuck with me one hour into this talk, you get to learn about how to intensify your orgasm. So there are multiple nerves that go to the brain from the pelvis that the brain puts in the pelvis. We've got pudundal, we've got pelvic, we've got the um, hypogastric nerve, we've got the vagus nerve. Uh, so there's multiple nerves. What their data has shown is if you stimulate multiple nerves, the orgasm experience is experienced as more intense than if you were just to stimulate one nerve, one part of your body to have an orgasm. So in demystifying like, is there a vaginal orgasm? Is there an or a clitoral orgasm? Is there a blah, blah? They're all experienced as orgasms. But and, if you stimulate multiple nerves, the orgasm experience is experienced differently or more intense or less localized or more broad. I just love this way of thinking about it. Um, the nipple, stimulating the nipple uh, gives you the thoracic and uh, thoracic nerve stimulation. And it's also recorded in the brain in the genital sensory area. Somebody said the brain MRI orgasm images. I know, <laughs> profound, fun, pretty fun to look at. So how do you intensify your orgasms? You stimulate multiple nerves. Orgasms and pain are the same neural pathway. This is why people say that orgasms can help decrease pain. Think of it like a highway and only one car can go on the highway at a time, right? And if you're experiencing pain, you increase the pleasure one and it can decrease the experience of pain because it's the same um, pathway. Yeah, somebody said not having a uterus changes orgasm in a huge way. Yes, that's real. That's not for everybody, but it is for more people than I think doctors validate. Um when you, they, they studied people's faces with experiencing pain and experiencing orgasm and your face makes the same faces. And, and then they said, okay, look at this person's face. Are they having an orgasm or are they experiencing pain? And humans can't tell because it's the same face that you make because it's the same neural pathways. Um, and arousal inhibits pain. There's actually something, I just interviewed a woman talking about, what do they call it? Orgasmic childbirth. In really trying to elicit pleasure as a way to manage, mitigate, optimize childbirth pain. Fascinating, fascinating. Um, the, in, so after you have an orgasm, you, uh, the inhibition is going on for a while, right? So you have this huge excitation, you're, uh, peak or you reach the mountaintop and then you have inhibition and that's called the refractory period um, and women have a shorter refractory period than men do and that is why they think women can experience what they call multiple orgasms or, or orgasms in quicker succession because they have less 
inhibition afterwards. Um, some case studies, I don't think this is published yet, of the drugs, most commonly known uh, drug would be Ozempic, but the GLP-2 uh, drugs in their role in helping um, what we called PGAD, persistent genital arousal disorder. We now we now call that um, genital dysesthesia. There's other words for it because we wanted to get the word arousal out of that diagnosis because of the stigma um, associated with saying like, oh, you're aroused, you must, um, must want it, you must like it. It's actually a very distressing condition, but it's commonly known as PGAD. Um, a couple of people talk about having patients with PGAD. They started Ozempic, the PGAD got better. The way they think this is working is by dopamine in the brain. In decreasing your dopamine, uh, it helps modulate the experience of persistent arousal disorder. So very interesting. With that, some reports of decreased desire for sex, decreased orgasm uh, ability in people uh, on the Ozempic-like medications. I got to show up to Ishwish next year because I hope there's going to be some more abstracts looking at that. Um, then they talked about causes of clitoral pain, things to think about with clitoral pain, uh, hormone issue, clitoral phimosis, infection, surgical scars, skin conditions, and then pudendal neuralgia, all different things that need to be considered when somebody comes in with clitoral pain. And then they talked about pudendal neuralgia as not being so much a disease as it's a symptom that something is going on or, or pissing off the nerve. Um, now, the pudendal nerve can get entrapped in scar tissue after a trauma, um, and they're saying that, you know, that would then be a disease because that's actually like a condition causing the pain, but the pain itself is not a disease. It's a sign that something else is going on. Uh, Dr. Hibner in the Arizona Center for Pelvic Pain does a transgluteal pudendal nerve release. He actually showed a video of it. Fascinating probably one of the world's experts, and in his data, 66% of people benefit from that surgery. And surgery is never the first thing that you do, but it's down the line in people who still have pain from the pudendal nerve. Then we did a lecture on uh, how to think about pain in terms of regions. So if somebody comes in saying, I have vulva pain, penis pain, clitoral pain, it's not always the end organ. You have to kind of go up the ladder in investigating where this pain is coming from. Region one, the end organ. It's like a skin condition or trauma to that. Oh, somebody just said Dr. Hibner's my doctor and he's amazing. Awesome. Shout out to Dr. Hibner on my podcast from me and a patient. So region one's the end organ. Region two is your pelvis. Region three is the cauda equina. So we're going up. Any of these areas can be the driver for pain. Region four is the spinal cord. Region five is the brain. So region three, going back again to the cauda equina, so the end of the spinal cord where the nerves are starting to spread out and go to their end organ. That's where the Tarlov cysts exist. These are discovered by MRI, often considered incidental, but can uh, have put profound pressure on the nerves, causing pain. Um, the other word for PGAD that I was trying to remember, what, that what they're calling it now is genital pelvic sciatica. Because so many people understand that sciatica is an unwanted nerve upregulation. And thinking about if you can get unwanted upregulation of your nerve in your sciatic going all the way down your leg, doesn't mean there's a problem with your leg. 
means there's a problem with the nerve and people understand that so in speaking to genital pain issues like that it helps explain what's going on a lot better than I have clitoris pain I have penis pain I have unwanted arousal Um, in the Journal of Sex Med in 2023, I believe it's February for anybody who's interested, there is a care algorithm for persistent genital arousal disorder. You can either look this up, bring it into your doctor, or if you're a provider, you can look that up. And then Jason Kutch, PhD from California, was talking about Region 5, so the role of the brain in chronic regional pain syndromes. Um, and so in people with pelvic pain, that they uh, have chronic overlapping conditions. They might have pain in other sites. If you have pain in multiple locations, it might be more important to address the brain because that is the up, go up the stream, region five, than each individual, like my elbow expert, my shoulder expert, my gut expert, right? Of like, there is a role for the brain, especially in people with chronic multiple uh, uh, regions of pain. They have a NIH grant looking at transcranial magnetic stimulation to treat widespread pain. That was very interesting. Um, and then they're researching neuromodulation of pain through immersive activity. And the immersive activity they used was surfing. There's actually a documentary on, I think, surfing and uh, maybe veterans and PTSD, uh, which I love documentaries on this stuff. I'll probably look it up, blanking on the name of that right now. But showing surfing gave people 50% reduction in their pain. And the theory is you have an external focus for your brain to look at and interact with. So this external focus of attention decreases your perception of pain. Absolutely insane. Then we had a talk on sex tech. Lots of cool statistics coming out of that. Um, the clitoral, we, she presented some research on the clitoral suction device. I call them clitoral suction devices. Um, some people don't like it that I call them that. They want to call them like air pulse, blah, blah, blahs. But she called them clitoral suction devices, so I feel very validated that I'm going to keep calling them that. Um, so she was saying the clitoral suction devices were a clear departure from the classic penis and vagina dildo vibrator um viewpoint of what women want as far as vibrators go and so defining what innovation is so is innovation is a clear departure from the kind of the standard practices um, some research showing virtual reality uh, experiences people who are wearing the virtual reality had increased arousal more uh, was experienced arousal is more intense than any 2D erotica consumption, like your classic magazines, um, porn would be 2D, two-dimensional. Uh, so that's super interesting. Um, they did a study looking at the clitoral suction devices. They did 12 weeks uh, prospective study in females with multiple sclerosis or spinal cord injury. What they found was there were sustained effects on improvement in sexual function after the trial. So the question of does the clitoral suction device actually restore function longer than you actually using it? Oh, somebody said the way I explain things is so good. Thank you. Words of affirmation is my love language. Please send letters. Um, 
they're talking about haptics, which is like a wearable touch sensor. So you're like, you're touching my arm and I feel it in my genitals. Trippy future sci-fi. It is not, there's not a product you can purchase as far as touchable haptics right now. Um, <laughs> somebody said, I'm in awe of how much info, fl info flies out of your mouth. Like, oh, nothing. You are brilliant. Thank you. Um, this is why I like doing Instagram podcasting. Like me talking to myself is horrific. Me talking to like 109 of you, much you're going to get a lot more out of me when I'm not talking to the wall. I currently have a green wall in front of me. That would be a much less interesting podcast. Talking about um, tech fears. So uh, the fears around tech. What fears when, when people say, hey, uh, porn, tech, blah, blah, blah. Um, desensitization. People are fear fearing that they're um, going to be desensitized and won't respond to their real life partner. Uh, tech fears is that women will become dependent. You're going to fall in love with your vibrator. Not true. Vibrators are not humans. Um, that, so these are fears kind of like myths, right? Um, that people are going to be intimidated. My boyfriend's going to be intimidated. My partner's going to be intimidated. Um, and then partner, that it'll create partner disconnection by bringing something into the bedroom. This has actually been debunked with multiple research studies in that women who incorporate vibrators into their sexual acumen actually have, like they research the female sexual dysfunction index, like so like objective quantifiable data showing that people are more sex positive, have healthier relationships, have better desire, because of or uh, as a consequence of or just because they're utilizing sex tech in their sex life. So that's pretty cool. Um, they were working, they were looking at, she was looking at uh, any of the data. This is Nicole Pross, who needs to be on my podcast because she gave an amazing talk about sex tech. Um, was talking about like the debunking, looking into the... Um, theory or myth or concern that vibrators cause desensitization and she's like well we don't have great data in the pelvis with vibrators but we do have vibratory trauma in construction worker data so people who use jackhammers people who use you know machine work people who who do repetitive things with machines that vibrate and from those studies there is a temporary desensitization but then it is restored and she's like very likely the products available in sex tech for vibrators are much the consumer products are at a much lower level of vibration intensity than construction worker tools um, but we do have some data that there is a transient desensitization in people who are working with their hands in construction with vibrators so she's like what I my takeaway from this was like when people are like vibrators won't desensitize you over the long term they won't temporarily yeah your nerves kind of like get a little bit exhausted and need a break um, so if you want to be very accurate about desensitization in vibrators it's a yes but right not like no they're not desensitizing but like yeah probably a little bit not on the order of a jackhammer being your job but the nerves do recover and it is not a permanent desensitization um so so i dropped my mic <laughs> here we are so the next question was 
is, is sex cam? So sex cam, I don't know the full definition, um, but like OnlyFans, right? So um, webs, websites, right? Places where you're interacting with people in a sexual nature. So that they're calling that sex cam now, and I need to look up the definition. If anybody on Instagram can quick Google that and tell me what the definition of sex cam is, if you feel comfortable, please report back. Dude, I can do a live podcast and have people find stuff for me and like... Who needs a research assistant when I have you guys? You guys are awesome. Somebody look up sex cam for me. Let's see what happens. Um, so it was a survey of 10,000 people looking at is sex cam use a substitute for real sex? Now, t of these 10,000 people, 94% of them were male and they were mostly single. Their average time on a site was eight minutes. There's the <laughs> Nicole was like, um, that seems to be the amount of time it takes for uh, sexual experience to happen. So if you're saying you're on there for other reasons, um, shout out quick to Jackie P underscore Gyne NP. That's her Instagram because she's on here watching me live right now. Amazing nurse practitioner doing sex and hormones. And she's got a great Instagram and she hung out with me at Ishwish. And uh, hi to you. So excited you're here. For people who are looking, she is down in the south. Uh, of this wonderful country, I believe. I'm blanking on what city you're in, Jackie. Please, please tell me. Um, okay, so sex cam. It's usually live, on camera, also known as cam girls. Okay, so it's a, that's interesting. Definition of it includes it being a live experience. And that might be how it's different than like consuming a porn video. Fascinating. Okay, that's super helpful. Um, so their average uh, male time, average time on the site is eight minutes. 72% say watching uh, sex cam is less satisfying than sex away from the screen. 64% say they feel calmer afterwards. So people are using this to regulate their nervous system, to calm down. Again, looking at why we have sex, why we consume sex, why we consume these things. We're, we're modulating our nervous system. Some people use it to feel calm. 29% um, say they wish they could quit. I literally need you to slow down and listen to this because this is insightful. 29% wish they could quit. We assume that means, oh, they can't though because they're addicted. What if they wish they could quit because they're not getting a fulfilling relationship at home? My partner for X, Y, and Z reasons, I'm not getting this need fulfilled at home. So I am using this as an adjunct, but in my hearts of hearts, I wish I could get this connection or my need fulfilled at home, which is a whole different way of looking at, oh, they can't quit because they're addicted. What about they're not getting what they, their needs met at home? Um, not to blame the partner in this scenario, but to create compassion for this response. Um, was a, a profound new way of thinking about it. Maybe nobody else is as blown away by that change in understanding that I am. And I apologize if I'm not ex explaining it enough. Um, okay, so this question. Does porn cause disconnection? Or are they looking for more connection because they already have the disconnection in real life? Very fascinating I, w I want more research on this um looking at erotic touch this so this theory um like presenting data on how 
sex cam and porn and robots and vibrators and all this sex tech doesn't replace a human relationship like we need proof but we're researchers and we're going to give people proof right so there is something called the c tactile afferent fibers on non glabrous skin so this is hair bearing skin c tactile afferent fibers on hair bearing skin if you have a non-gloved human rubbing at a certain touch and frequency on your hairy skin, it produces arousal and connection in the brain. They've tried it with a robot touching the skin. They've tried it with a gloved hand touching the skin. Nothing replaces the sensation that your nerves have literally been built to detect human touch on your arm or hairy skin I think they did I I think they didn't do genital hair but it was like arm leg blah 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 and they've tried to see if they could trigger that nerve with a gloved hand a robot all the other things and, and they gave a great explanation of this if you take your arm and you rub it really really fast that's like energy right if you, if you touch it another certain way, it might be tickly. And then if you touch it a, the kind of a slow with that gentle sort of pressure, that's the arousal touch. It's very specific. And we are wired to detect that from another human. And doing the same sort of touch with a non-human doesn't fire the nerves. Now who's coming to Ishwish in 2025? right like it's this shit it's so fucking fascinating oh my god um and then they looked at you know who uses sex tech why are they using sex tech and a great majority of any gender yeah somebody said that's profound i wonder if that is part of our survival brain yeah absolutely um any gender the reason for engaging in sexual activity whether it's sex cam or something else is I need to feel desired any gender we have an innate need to feel connected to feel desired and this is very profound for me especially when I talk to maybe the low desire person in a relationship not understanding the higher desires need um, and thinking they just want sex they just want this physical act they just want it whatever whatever kind of negative we're putting on that and why communication is so important is like there is a profound need to feel loved to feel connected to feel desired some people get that by having sex some people need that before they have sex in order to have sex and I always joke around and say those two people are living in a house together <laughs> but really understanding we dismiss people's need we see it as this need for physical sexual contact and it's really a deep desired need to feel desired to feel connected to feel loved that somebody wants me and if we can look at the sexual experience through that lens and in fulfilling a need it makes us all human and it makes sex less whatever you want to label on it. I want to share this thought that somebody um, somebody just shared. 
former massage therapist. I had clients who were older, living alone, who regularly booked to just have human touch. No sexual, just to be touched. Very emotional for them. I'm not crying, you're crying. Oh my God. You guys, this is profound, profound work. Um, switching and pause. Um, yeah, people that are alone forget human touch. Yeah, absolutely. There's nothing better than skin to skin. Yeah, absolutely. So you will not be replaced by a robot. There. Case closed. Um, and in, in thinking, if you are the person who is being challenged with a partner's request for, for sexual intimacy in learning how to communicate the actual needs, maybe how we can, can meet those needs, not by putting something in a vagina, if that's painful, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so looking at myths again, the myth of semen retention in on the internet is so hot right now. Somebody did research showing 50% of topics discussed in men's sexual health on the internet is semen retention, and there is zero data that not masturbating, not having sex, holding your semen in is provides a health benefit. And that really people are doing this for clicks or for money or to to perpetuate the non-masturbation agenda but um semen retention is bullshit fyi pass it on there is a group that claims to reach spiritual enlightenment you should never experience orgasm um hard stop you should never experience orgasm and that it cure not experiencing orgasm or, or hanging on to your semen or your ejaculation cures alcohol and depression and cures terrorism it's just insanity. It's like make a bunch of shit up and put it on the internet and then charge money to coach people on how to do it. This is nuts. Um, so that was a very good good uh, presentation on myths around sexual health. So, so he joked it would cure child support. Meh. Um, I did not, there was a, a, there was a talk, so I gave my talk yesterday at noon on advocacy and social media and how we think of ourselves as, are we promoters, are we connectors, are we enhancers? We don't have to do the research, but how do we get it out there, right? Like some, some people's job in life is to research. My job is to communicate the research. I am a knowledge translator. That is my role. That is why I have my podcast. That is why I love talking to people because this stuff excites me and I really think it can help your life. And, and uh, so that was my talk yesterday. Did an hour long talk with Jill Craft. The talk that I missed because I, and now I'm up in Santa Barbara. The talk that I missed was on rough sex and choking and I missed it, so I need to go review the slides, but I believe the takeaway is that choking and dangerous behaviors are actually, can be very bad for your brain. If you decrease oxygen to the brain, it's bad for the brain. Do I need to explain this to people? Um, also, some non-consensual stuff happening, uh, especially in the younger generations of people agree slash not agreeing, right? It's that like, I don't want it, but I don't feel like I can say no. 
Um, it's in the popular music right now. Thinking that choking behaviors are vanilla sex, really kind of normalizing. Um, I have to tell you, my gut right now, I'm a little uncomfortable with this in a non-consensual hell. If it's not a hell yes, do not do it. So, uh, yeah, more to come on that. Maybe I'll watch the uh, the lecture that I missed and have that person on my podcast because I think the the importance of freaking good adult sex ed in saying this is happening, these are the concerns with it. So um, there was a, a talk today that I'm missing. Shout out to Jill Craft on progesterone, the role of progesterone. Um, so I'm bummed that I'm missing that. But dude, I just talked for an hour and a half on what I did show up to. There was a, um, one more, one more parting thought. There was a abstract looking at phlebanserin, trade name Addy, um, on women, I believe it was women with aromatase inhibitors. So breast cancer patients looking at that. So more to come. Thank God people are doing this research. I thought that there was 5 million breast cancer survivors. Uh, Dr. Corinne Men said 6 million. Um, so certainly this is a large part of our population that's suffering, that is undertreated, both in regards to sexual health and hormone health. Um, and really excited to come out of this uh, conference looking at how can we write some guidelines so that providers have guidelines for who after a breast cancer diagnosis can be on hormones. Certainly the triple negatives, certainly the DCIS, uh, but we need guidelines to say all breast cancer is not all breast cancer, right? We're oversimplifying and therefore under-treating. So I'm very excited about that. I'm very excited to really start working on getting the DEA regulation off of testosterone, really starting to look at my intersectionality of sex ed, menopause hormones, and the role of testosterone, and really thinking like my, my three bubble Venn diagram that I've really like where are my interests where do my interests lie how do these all overlap and how can I advocate with the power that I have with the audience that I have with the doctors that I can access with the legislature you know higher ups people who are on the advocacy world how we can advocate um one one more final have I been saying one more final thought for an hour and a half probably um the 100 million in research that uh, First Lady Jill Biden is pushing through, which is incredible. Uh, but I talked to a friend who was in the room with that uh, earlier this week. And I said, if you do $100 million in research, but you do not spend any money educating the doctors and the providers on how to translate this research into actual care for women, you have not moved the needle. If you put in a hundred million in research and you keep all that information behind a paywall in the research journals and you do not educate the providers and you do not educate the women in how to advocate for themselves, you have not moved the needle. So here we go. Yes, we need a hundred million more in research, but it has to include the knowledge translation part. Incredibly important. And that's what I do. So thank you so much. Um, 
I love you guys all. Thank you for being here. Thank you for following. The podcast is growing and the Instagram is growing because it's being shared. I do not advertise. I do not. I can, I literally cannot boost on Instagram because I do have say um, some words that are anatomical body parts that uh, violate terms and conditions. So I do not promote. I do not boost. I do not advertise. Literally, I am going to get to the top of the Apple Health and Fitness charts because of you. I'm not buying my way there. This is a boat that is rising. And I encourage you, if you care about this, if you think women can benefit from this, if you think couples and men and all genders can benefit from this, effing share this information. Promote it. Say it's medically accurate. Say how important it is to you that the knowledge translation that comes from the benchtop and the scientists gets out into the world. Please do it. Use me. I am here. The universe put me here. I am here. That is one hour and 37 minutes. Anybody who hung out to the end, God bless you. This might be the longest podcast episode I've ever done. And that is from two days at the Ishwish. This is a thought download from two days at the 2024 Ishwish meeting. God bless. Join Ishwish if you're a provider, please. It's awesome. All right, you guys. I love you so much. Signing off until next time. Oh, real quick, there's going to be a bonus episode of the podcast this Wednesday talking all about my retreat. So I usually I release podcasts on Sundays. This is going to be a Wednesday podcast release. If you want to hear that, please do. Uh, if you don't and that retreat is not for you, just wait till next Sunday or listen to this one again because boy, did I do a thought download. All right. I love you guys so much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of You Are Not Broken. If you want to dig deeper with me, sign up for my adult sex education masterclass where you learn adult things like communication skills, anatomy lessons, and desire types, and how to talk to your doctor about sexual health concerns. If you want the adult sex education masterclass for free, join my monthly membership for more in-depth, exclusive content, more time with yours truly, a private podcast, coaching, and educational empowerment. And you can watch my interviews live and get them immediately without advertising. Head over to www.kellycaspersonmd.com for the membership and adult sex ed masterclass. Members get the masterclass for free. This podcast is presented solely for educational, entertainment, and informational purposes only. I am a doctor, but not your doctor in this format. And all of my platforms and guests, including on this podcast, are not giving individual medical advice or practicing medicine. See and consult with your own care team for your individual needs and concerns. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for the care and advice of a physician, therapist, or other qualified professional. This podcast does not constitute the practice of medicine, in case you were curious about that, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. But I still love you. Using the information on this podcast or any of my platforms is at your own risk. Until next time, remember, you are not broken.